So I need to to talk to Linda first. Yeah. It's one of those one of those church discipline things. Yes, yes. Matthew 18, okay? So as as you will know as a church, as a congregation, um, Linda doesn't like what I like. Yeah. Uh, she knows I'm a, I'm a fan of sci-fi movies. And she has made it been publicly known that she doesn't doesn't side with my my view on movies, right, Linda? Okay, I just uh, you know we're in agreement there. Okay, and you know I love you, Linda, uh, but this just this is just very painful to me. And 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 as a as as your pastor, I'm trying to to extend an olive branch, so to speak. Maybe maybe meet you in the middle. Right? Maybe meet you in the middle. And what, what I'm thinking, since you don't, you don't really care for my kind of movie, the sci-fi movies, maybe, maybe meeting you in the middle, what about zombie movies? That's not in the middle? A zombie movie's not in the middle. Like the, the Walking Dead. You know what they are? You know a zombie. They're walking dead. They're walking dead. This, this, what's that? It's about You're not. You're not helping, Jennifer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, you won't go there with me. Okay, okay, okay. It's on record. We know where we both stand, and we're just not going to be reconciled uh, in in this matter. I get it. Okay, okay. No Walking Dead. Just want to make sure. It's, yeah, you would think. Yeah. You, you might you might wonder why <laughs> why we just had this this uh, this dialogue, right? But actually, it it does it does fit in to my sermon. We we are talking about the Walking Dead, so to speak. Okay. We have we have made it to our our fifth church on this this postal route in in Western Asia Minor. Is it up behind me? There you go. Okay, uh, and, and and so you see the postal route behind me. And we this fifth church is the is the church in Sardis. Which moves us into Revelation chapter 3. We're just steaming along through this book. Revelation chapter 3 finally made it there. And as we've done in the past, before we look at the church, 
let's let's take a look at at the city. The city of Sardis was located about 50 miles east of Smyrna. Are you doing the little 50 miles east of Smyrna and 30 miles southeast of Thyatira? Do you see that? And in the the 6th century BC, it was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Before it was Asia Minor, it was Lydia. Okay? Before the, the Persian Empire came a knocking, Sardis was one of the wealthiest cities of the ancient world. Rich from gold and silver mining. And rich because it was situated at a junction of several important roads and trade routes. Money seemed to come easy for these people. We could say they were rolling in it. And speaking of money, it is reported that the first coins ever to be minted in Asia Minor were minted in Sardis. In this city, there was a massive temple to its patron goddess, Sibley, who was equated with the, with the Greek goddess, Artemis. See a picture back there of the temple? Okay. She was known as the, the virgin hunter archer and a deity associated with nature and animals and fertility. And it's safe to assume that whenever people worshipped a god or a goddess of fertility, you can bet that there was also sexual immorality associated with that worship. They just seemed to go hand in hand together. So Sardis became known as a city of luxury. A city of loose living. A pleasure seeking. And they had the financial means to do it. Sardis was also well, had his well-deserved reputation for complacency. Which was based in part... On their own history. The city was situated at an elevation of about 1,500 feet on a high, narrow plateau with the sides of the plateau consisting of steep cliff walls which were exceedingly difficult to climb, and therefore the city was almost impregnable. Or at least thought so. The Greek historian Herodotus tells the story of the fall of Sardis in the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus came to Sardis and found the position of the city ideally suited 
for defense because there seemed to be no way to scale the steep cliff walls surrounding the city. Cyrus offered a rich reward to any soldier in his army who could figure out a way to get to the city. One Persian soldier studied the problem very carefully. And as he looked, he saw a soldier who was defending Sardis drop his helmet down the steep cliff walls. And then he watched the soldier climb down a hidden trail to recover his helmet. The Persian soldier marked the location of the trail and led a detachment of soldiers up it that night. They easily climbed the cliffs, came to the actual city walls, and found them unguarded. The soldiers of Sardis were so confident in their natural defenses of the cities, they felt no need to keep a consistent, constant watch. And so the city was easily conquered. The same thing happened almost 200 years later when uh, when, uh, Antiochus the Great, who was a Greek, also conquered the city. A complacent city. He conquered it the exact same way. 200 years later. So that's the background of this city. Now let's dig into the church in Sardis beginning in verse 1. So we're in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel... Of the church in Sardis write. He who has the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars. Says this. I know your deeds. That you have a name. That you are alive. But you are dead. Let's stop right there. Jesus begins his letter by reminding this church that he holds the seven spirits of God, which refers to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he holds the seven stars, which refers to the pastors of these seven churches in Asia Minor. And it seems that Jesus identifies himself this way as a clue to what this church needed. They needed life. They needed faithful and godly leadership. And they needed to remember that Jesus is Lord of the church. Something they may have Forgotten. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. 
I will tell you that it's somewhat difficult to understand what's really going on with this church because Jesus doesn't come right out and tell us like he did in the other churches. There's no mention of persecution against this church. No outside threats. No mention of false doctrines within this church. No Jezebels like there were in the church in Thyatira. Everything seemed to be in good working order from all outward appearances. However, Jesus says something to this church that certainly no church would ever want to hear. From the outside, you look alive. I see some activity. I see some movement. But you are dead. In a city, in a city that was living it up, so to speak, this church was filled with the walking dead. Walking dead in the pews and likely walking dead in the pulpit. Jesus said, I know your deeds. The church in Sardis likely had a nice building. They had the money. They had their services. They had some programs. They had some religious activity. But they were dead. Meaning they were spiritually lifeless and fruitless and useless. Playing church. Just playing church. Going through the motions. We're told this church had a name. Meaning they had a reputation. Apparently, the church in Sardis had a a reputation for being alive and well. They were a healthy church at one time, possibly from a previous congregation. But now they have rested on their past successes of the good old days and paid no attention to their current spiritual condition. They had a reputation for being alive. But that reputation was no longer deserved. The church was absent of spiritual life. It was lifeless and fruitless and useless. It was a church 
Jesus described, those are his words, he described as dead. Reader's Digest tells the story about a cat that had been run over by a car. The cat belonged to four-year-old Billy. And before he could find out about his cat's death, his mother quickly disposed of the remains. After a few days, Billy finally asked about the cat. His mother knelt down so she could look Billy right in the eyes and took his hand and gently as she could, she said, Billy, the cat died. Then in an attempt to comfort Billy, his mother said to him, but it's all right, Billy, because he's up in heaven with God. Billy, of course, was devastated. But he had a quizzical look on his face. And after a moment, he asked, What would God want with a dead cat? God doesn't want a dead cat. And he doesn't want a dead church either. This church in Sardis were like the people the Apostle Paul described in his second letter to Timothy. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They looked religious. But they had no spiritual power for living the Christian life. They were the walking dead. Coming to church only because that is the thing to do on Sunday morning. Without any expectation of experiencing God. Or growing in their relationship with Him. And it would seem that things which occurred inside the church had no impact outside the church walls. They did nothing to draw attention to themselves or for the Lord that matter. And one has to wonder, one has to wonder if this church, this church had closed its doors, would anybody in the community have noticed? I don't know. I don't know. But it is a valid question. And maybe this is why Jesus introduced himself as the one who holds the fullness of the Holy Spirit and holds the pastors because the Spirit 
was not operating in that church. And there was no godly and faithful leadership in that church. And Jesus knew it. This church had no heartbeat. But there was a glimmer of hope. Because apparently Jesus knows spiritual CPR. And he says in verses 2 and 3. Turn there. Verses 2 and 3. Wake up. And strengthen the things that remain. Which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. This seems to be an urgent command from Jesus because time is of the essence. And in this command, he gives a series of five actions that are necessary for their resuscitation. And they are wake up, strengthen, remember, keep it, and repent. As I already mentioned, two foreign armies captured the city of Sardis because they got complacent. They got lazy. And Jesus wants this church to avoid the exact same fate as this city. So he tells them to wake up. One of the first steps of of CPR, at least the way I learned it, was to gently shake the, the unconscious person to hopefully get a response. And that seems to be the picture we have here. Jesus is shaking this church and shouting, Wake up! Snap out of it! Are you with me? Are you with me? This church needed to understand that something was terribly wrong. They had become lifeless complacent and lazy. And they had drifted off into unconsciousness. And now it had become a matter of life and death for them. Then Jesus says to strengthen the things that remain. Meaning, if there is anything that hasn't completely died yet. If there is still something positive to build upon, if there is anything worth saving, 
If there is any truth, if there is any morality or purity, if there is any goodness, at least try to salvage that before it's too late. Jesus also tells this church to remember what they had received and heard. To bring to mind the truths of the gospel they had once cherished. And to remember when they once had a heart for God. Sometimes when a person drifts off, memory can serve as a bridge to reconnect with the past. Just like the prodigal son. Remember that story? Just like the prodigal son who had drifted away and had become destitute, but later remembered how it used to be in his father's house. And he wanted to come home. So they were to remember the gospel truths they had received and heard. They were to let these truths stir in their hearts. And they were told to hold on to them. To keep them. That word keep can also be translated as observe. Which implies that Jesus wants them to embrace what is true and decide to live on the basis of that truth. In other words, to really let the truth sink in and to take hold, it involves living it as well. The living and the doing reinforces the thinking. So Jesus wants them to turn to Him with their whole heart and to live according to the truth. But He also wants them to turn away from that which is untrue and sinful. And that's why He gives us the last command to repent. To repent literally means to change your mind and to turn from your sinful ways. And this command might be the most difficult for this complacent church of the walking dead. For most of us, we don't change unless there is some real pain and discomfort involved. We don't pray Unless we are in desperate and dire need. We don't seek God unless we are in deep trouble. And we don't repent unless there is no other way. And I suspect the church in Sardis was no different. They were likely resistant to change. Resistant to laying down their own wants 
and their own desires and their habits and their traditions. And they had settled into a life of complacency. Thinking they were living the Christian life when in reality they were the walking dead. Then Jesus ends his command with a stern warning. Saying that if they do not change, he will come like a thief when they do not expect it. This warning would have been significant to this church in context to the history of the city. Just like the complacent city had fallen to the unexpected attacks of the cliff walls, so the church in Sardis will be caught by surprise with the Lord's discipline if they do not do what Jesus told them to do. Now in this dead church, there was a remnant of faithful followers. A remnant of faithful followers. And Jesus had some words for them. Look at verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Jesus says that there were a few faithful followers in this dead church who loved and served the Lord from a pure heart and had not mingled with the pagan society around them. Even amongst the walking dead in the pews and in the pulpit, there were a faithful few. And to this faithful few, Jesus related they would walk with Him in close fellowship and friendship and intimacy and be clothed in white, a symbol of pureness and redemption. Jesus said, for they are worthy. Not because they earned it. But because they trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord and were born again. They were worthy because Christ and Christ alone made them worthy by His finished work. Their faithful works and their faithful deeds were not a means to salvation. They were the result of their salvation. Do you see the difference? Their deeds and their works were not a means to salvation. It was the result of their salvation. Then Jesus concludes his letter with a statement to them and to us who have ears, and he says in verses 5 and 6, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, 
And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus addresses this to the overcomers. Who are the overcomers? Let's work our way back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. And as a reminder, this is the exact same Apostle John who is writing the book of Revelation. Okay? Are you there? Should be just a few chapters from Revelation. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. And he says, verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So then, who are the ones who overcome? An overcomer is not a special class of believers. Rather, it is the individual who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John is describing true believers in Christ who have placed their faith in His saving and completed work through His death and resurrection. It is Jesus who conquered sin and death. And as born-again believers in Christ, we share in His victory. These are the overcomers. And to these overcomers, Jesus makes a few promises. They will be clothed in white garments, which we just talked about. But He also says, I will not erase his name 
from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In John's day, cities kept a register of each citizen. When there was a birth, the baby's name was entered into the city's register as a citizen. And when there was a death or someone received uh, a serious criminal conviction, their name was erased from the register as a citizen. So from verse 5, from verse 5, those who overcome, those who are truly born again through faith in Jesus Christ, those who are spiritually alive, they are assured of their heavenly citizenship. I mean, this is a strong statement of assurance and security. It's a a positive affirmation of a spiritual reality that for those whom God saves, they are saved forever. That's all we are told here. But let me say, there are some who take this passage a little further than what is actually written. And suggest this passage also implies a Christian can lose their salvation. That someone is saved one day with their name written in the book of life. And on another day, if they have backslidden or committed some kind of sin... Their names are erased out of the book, implying names are being constantly written, erased, rewritten, and on and on, as if Jesus is sitting in heaven with a big number two pencil and a super large eraser. But that's not what we're told here. This passage simply says, the overcomer, okay? The overcomer, a true believer who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, will not have their name erased from the book of life. Period. That's all it says. Now, I don't want to get lost on a rabbit trail. But Jesus does provide some clarification in this matter. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. No need to turn there. I'm just going to explain it. Jesus gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. In a field, a landowner sowed wheat. But in the night... The enemy sowed tares in his field. Tares look a lot like wheat. 
during the early stages until it is obvious they are not wheat. For the fruit, the grain looks different and it's toxic. Well, you know the rest of the story. The slaves of the landowner wanted to pull out the tares. But they were told not to do so for fear the wheat would be pulled up as well. The slaves were told to let them grow together until the harvest. Okay? So the wheat and the tares are growing together until the harvest. In a church. In the church in Sardis. In any church. There are wheat and tares. There are those in a genuine Relationship with God. And then there are those who only claim to be in a relationship with God. There are Christians. And then there are Christians in name only. They profess to believe. They might play church. But inside, their hearts are far from God. Judas was a prime example. He walked with Jesus for three years. He was named as one of the twelve. He went through the motions even fooled the other 11. But he could not fool Jesus. Judas was a tear amongst the wheat. He was never a true believer, never a child of God, never saved. He only recognized Jesus as a great rabbi but never as his Savior and Lord. And his name was not written in the book of life when he left this world. It's called the book of life, not the book of death, for a reason. To the overcomer, to those who are truly saved, Jesus also promised to confess your name before his Father and before his angels. It's good to have friends in high places, isn't it? One day, one day we will stand before the Lord and Jesus will say to those in attendance, his father and the angels. I know him. I know her. 
He's with me. She's my friend. Well done, good and faithful servant. Those are the words I want to hear. Those are the words I want to hear. That's all I want to hear, quite frankly. Well done, good and faithful servant. Unfortunately, there are some who will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Now there's some good news. Jesus loved this dead church in Sardis. For if he did not if he did not care, if he had given up on them, why bother with this letter? Why bother? Surely this letter caused them to examine themselves to see if they were in the faith, if they were abiding in Christ. And this letter should do the same for us and prompt us as a church and as individuals to ask some very hard questions. Have I genuinely placed my faith, my trust, my life in Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord? And if so, is it reflected in my life? Do I really know Him? Do I really know Him? Am I one of the faithful few? Am I one of the faithful few? Or am I one of the walking dead? Lifeless? Fruitless? And useless? Playing church just going through the motions. These are some serious questions to be asked, aren't they? But they're questions that need to be asked. I mean, this is a time to get serious. And if we're not taking our relationship with the Lord serious, You may very well think you are spiritually alive, as I suspect this church had thought, when in reality, 
You are the walking dead. Something to think about, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, I knew this sermon would be hard from the very beginning. Even last week, I was already complaining about it. It's caused me to evaluate my own life, to examine my own heart, to question if I'm just playing church, if I'm just going through the motions, to wonder where my heart is. This church in Sardis apparently had some unfaithful pastors. Father, I don't want to be one of those. Father, I also know that we're at different stages in life. That you're growing us and that we're progressing as you see fit, as you determine. I understand that, Lord. Father, I fear at times that there are those who said some magic words, at least they thought were magic words, a magic prayer when they were young, and their life hasn't changed one single bit. Father, only you know a person's heart. I do not know. I do not know. But Father, I pray even now that you would search my heart first and foremost and the hearts of those who hear. Help us, Lord God, to get serious about you, to love you. Help us, Father, to commit our lives to you, to quit playing church, to stop going through the motions, to wake up, to quit being lazy and complacent. And Father, to be wholly devoted to Jesus. May you be honored and glorified, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a I'm a firm believer. That how I live my life, how I serve, how I do ministry, how I love others, they can go on and on, right? I believe these things are merely a reflection of my relationship with Him. Does that make sense? How I live my life flows from my relationship with Him. It it should just flow. How I serve should, should flow from my relationship with Him. How I do ministry should flow 
from my relationship with Him. It starts with the relation. I think that's what Jesus is stressing in this message to Sardis. I fear sometimes we, we go through a, a letter like this to Sardis. Let's just go get busy. Let's just go start doing stuff. And there's nothing wrong with doing stuff. But the relationship has to come first. Otherwise, we're just what? Going through the motions. It's about our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, you there are some who may feel you can have Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord. I don't know where that comes from. It's two sides of the same coin. He is Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. I don't know where you are. Again, like I said, my prayer, I don't know your hearts. But I can tell you, this, this, this passage really caused me to look in the mirror. I think sometimes we forget. You know, when we, this was a letter to a church, but sometimes we might think that the church is just a a building. We we go to church, right? We go, but no, we are the church. This is just a building. That's all this is, is a building. We are the church. And if the church has a problem, if the church has a problem, then what we need to do individually is to look that person in the mirror because that's where it starts. To look that person in the mirror talking about you (laughs) look yourself in the mirror because that's where it has to start and I think once our relationships are right everything else just flows like it needs to wherever you are this morning I I do pray that the Lord does at least cause you to just examine I don't want to create doubt I don't want to create doubt in your life but Paul does tell us to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. He says that, to examine ourselves, to see if, are we just playing church? Or are we, are we truly, genuinely of the faith? Are we truly overcomers? Paul tells us to do that. Again, I don't want to create doubt. I just want to just cause us to think about who, who, who are, who are we? Who am I? I hope the Lord is impressed on your heart this morning. You learned something. He loves us so much. Even the church of Sardis, he loved them dearly. He died for them. He loves us dearly. He desires the best for us. And sometimes that requires some, some shaking. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. You're getting complacent. You're getting lazy. Wake up. Sometimes that's what's required. But he loves us so much. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, boy, let me know. I would love just to sit down and just talk with you. Maybe today, even uh, maybe a Monday. Whatever. I would love just to talk to you about 
a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that important. Love to talk with you. If you're looking for a church to join, we would love to have you. If there's something else you're dealing with, I would love to talk with you. However the Lord moves you, I just ask that you just be obedient to Him. That's what I ask. No pressure, no guilt. Just be obedient to your Lord. I'd like to close in prayer uh, for our offering and then also for our, our fellowship. And There's meatloaf back there. Did I mention that? <laughs> so let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for, for gathering us together here. I, I love these people, Father. I just thank you so much for making me part of this family. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would just uh, bless uh, the next portion of our of our, our service uh, and worship to you uh, in our giving. Father, help us to give with cheerful hearts, with joyful hearts, Father, with uh, hearts of gratitude. You've blessed us so much. And Father, I just pray that you bless the giver and bless the gift. And you, Father, would just help us as a church to use your money, and it is your money, to use it wisely. And Lord, for our fellowship afterwards, Father, bless the food to our bodies. Bless those who have brought food and prepared the food. And Lord, I just pray that our fellowship would just be awesome and sweet and encouraging. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.